Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to be with you as we open God's Word. I do want to give you a bit of a disclaimer. We're going to be in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 this morning, and we'll be discussing David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, you, if you've been here, you know we try to handle these issues with tact, but that is what we're addressing. So if you've got your little ones with you and uh, you feel like uh, you don't want to have that conversation today over lunch, uh, then you have a moment uh, to take them over to the Children's Ministry Center. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get started. Our commitment to you is always to address these things uh, tactfully and in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, but that's the text in front of us, and so that's the assignment we have for uh, the morning. I want to pray as we get into God's Word this morning, but I also want to ask you uh, a favor. If you would pray for me and for my family tomorrow afternoon, I am headed to Ethiopia. I'll be in country 10 days uh, serving with Tom and Ramon and Lunsford and their ministry of disciple-making pastors and disciple-making leaders. So I'm excited about it, but I'd ask you to pray uh, that I would have a safe trip and get home uh, in basically the same condition I left, and that God would watch over uh, Leisha and our kids while I'm gone. And so uh, I'm going to miss you next week, but I would appreciate if you guys could remember uh, to lift up me and my family in prayer while we're gone. Uh, with that said, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father God, we thank you, uh, Lord, that you haven't left us in the dark to figure things out on our own, but that you gave us your word. And that your word reveals to us who we are and who you are and how that we can walk with you. How we can have a relationship and be restored to you. Father, I pray uh, that as we open your word, that your spirit that Jesus sent when he ascended uh, to heaven would be active. That he would open our eyes to see the truth and the powerful application of your word in our own lives. And Lord, that he would open our hearts that they might receive the word with gladness. Lord, we pray that, that you would do a work transforming us and that we would leave this place different than the way we came. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the basic understandings of the Christian faith is that we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible is true, that it's inspired by God, that it's trustworthy, and because it's inspired by God and because it's trustworthy, it's authoritative. That the Word of God, the Bible, should guide our decision-making. It should guide our belief systems, our values, and our activities. Not just on big decisions, but on small decisions. And built into that belief that the Word of God is true is the reality that the Word of God deals honestly with the people of the Bible. It has the ring of truth. You see, if I was going to write a story of my life, with no concern for the truth, if we were going to make the movie, The Life of Skeet, and I wasn't concerned with the truth, there are things that would get left out. There are elements of the story that would just get kind of smoothed over and things that would altogether be left on the cutting room floor. I've given this some thought. The screenplay's in progress. I've actually already casted uh, some of the roles. Uh, Matthew McConaughey will be playing me. Um, one, he's a Texan. And then we're roughly built the same. He has arms, I have arms. You see? There's a similarity there. But if you're telling your story, and you're not concerned with the facts, you're simply concerned with uh, the way the story comes out and how you look, um, you omit things. And the thing that I love when you read the Bible is that the Bible deals so honestly with the failings and shortcomings 
of the heroes we find. And so today we're going to read what I think is a difficult text. If you know the story of David, if you follow along, if you're one of those people that genuinely likes what you see in David, this story is difficult because we watch David slip into sin that's going to bring horrific destruction upon his family. And it's tough to watch someone you've cheered for, someone you've celebrated, stumble and fall. And that's what we find today. But in the midst of that, I want you to remember the honesty of the Word of God. And that this story is, in fact, one of the reasons that we have confidence that God's Word is true. Because it shows us the men that we revered, that we look to as inspiration to be fallen just as we are. So the story we want to read today is the story of David's greatest failure. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1 as the story picks up. It begins this way, in the spring of the year. The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and One said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this is the story. The story begins with what seems very subtle and almost imperceptible failure on the part of David. The Scriptures tell us that this occurred in the springtime when kings go off to war and David stayed home. David neglected his responsibilities to lead the army. He remained at home. And what we find David doing is he gets up from his couch late in the afternoon. He just probably had a nap and he's resting in comfort. While his men are out on the battle lines besieging the city of the Ammonites. And he gets up and he walks out on the terrace and he looks and he sees a woman bathing. And he notices that she's beautiful and he desires her. And so he has his guards go and get her and bring him to himself. And there he has sexual intimacy with her and she goes home. She becomes pregnant. Now, a few things I want you to note about the story is that, is that David is not where he's supposed to be, but, but he's walking on the terrace, and the king's house would have been larger and elevated and had a sweeping view of the city, and there he sees a woman bathing. Now, we might ask the question, why are you bathing on the porch? But I want you to recognize that, that they didn't have an indoor shower facility for Bathsheba to use. Uh, maybe she could have been more modest, but the scripture never indicates that Bathsheba had done anything wrong in what she was doing. Might have been a normal practice, although it seems strange to us because we all have showers inside. Maybe she could have done something differently, but I point this out because oftentimes people will want to lay the blame on Bathsheba as if she were a temptress, and the Scripture simply doesn't do that. When the Scripture tells the story and gives the autopsy of the whole experience, Bathsheba does not get judged or condemned by God. 
The reality is that that she didn't have any of the power in this situation. Her king came for her and called for her and she went and responded. And her king desired to sleep with her and she complied. Maybe she wanted to be with David. Maybe she was simply being obedient out of fear. We don't know. But the scriptures never put anything at Bathsheba's feet. They don't call Bathsheba a homewrecker. They say David committed sinful acts. And so I want to point that out at the onset. That David is the one with the power. And David is the one who initiates this. And David is the one who pursues Bathsheba. Bathsheba's only speaking part in the story are two words. After she's gone home, and I guess some time has passed, Bathsheba sends word to David, and the two words are this, I'm pregnant. Now, I want you to think about those two words, and I want you to think about the way those two words are designed to be received. Because God created sexual intimacy for the enjoyment of a man and a woman in the context of a marriage. So one man, one woman for one lifetime, enjoying one another in this way. And the fruit of that enjoyment with one another is the blessing of children. Image bearers of God, whom God has commanded his people to go be fruitful and multiply so that they would fill and subdue the earth so that as more children were born to men and women, more representatives of God would fill the earth and there would be great joy. And so in God's design, the two words, I'm pregnant, are intended to be a cause of celebration. In God's grace to Alicia and I, Five times I've gotten to hear her say, I'm pregnant. And five times we have delivered healthy babies. And every time that Leisha has said those words to me, I'm pregnant. I've celebrated that experience because I love my children and they're a gift from God. And and I want you to see what happens, what God had intended to be two of the most joyous words ever spoken to a man for David are not a cause for rejoicing. When Bathsheba sends her messengers to the palace and they tell David those two words, I'm pregnant. He doesn't celebrate and grab her and hug her and spin around. And he doesn't go and think about what the nursery will look like. He doesn't take her out to dinner to celebrate. He begins to concoct a plan to cover up the sin. The story continues in verse 6 of chapter 11. So David sent word word to Joab. Send Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also and tomorrow. 
and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that it made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So I want you to see the cover up begin to move. David realizes he's in trouble because Bathsheba is pregnant and her husband is away at war. And so it's obvious whenever he returns, if she's pregnant or has a child, that this child does not belong to her husband. So he summons her husband and has him brought back to the city and sends him home. And his thinking is he's been away at war. He misses his wife. He'll go home. He'll stay with her. They will be intimate with one another. And then he has cover. Because then when it's discovered that she's pregnant, there won't be a shock because her husband will say, well, we we were intimate with one another that time that I came home on R&R for the weekend. But Uriah is an honorable man. He said, I won't do it. Uh, The ark of God is intense. And my people, my general and all of the armies, my brothers in arms are off away from their families. And in solidarity with them, I'm going to bypass the enjoyment and blessings of being at home. Well, David doesn't know exactly what to do. So he comes up with plan B, which is let's have a party. Let's get him drunk and then send him home. He doesn't do it. I want you to note two things about David that should concern us here. Before we go any further, I want you to see something. Uriah is an honorable man and David is a deceptive man. You see, in this story, there is a man whose heart looks like God's, but it's not David. It's Uriah. The Bible tells us he's a Hittite, so he's not even born of the people of Israel. But we know from the way he speaks in reverence to the ark of God that he is a believer. He's a faithful man and an honorable man. And David is deceptive. The second thing that should concern us, that should give us pause about David, is he's all too willing to give up his own child. This is his baby and he's perfectly comfortable to cover up his sin by allowing someone else to raise his child and have no contact with him. He's okay with that. But Uriah doesn't take the bait. And so David concocts another plan. The story picks up in verse 14. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. So I want you to see how the story evolves. He's trying to cover his sin. He tries to convince Uriah to come home and lie with his wife, but he won't. And so here's the plan. David writes a letter to his commander, Joab, and the letter says this. When the fighting intensifies, I want you to have Uriah out on the front lines, and I want you to pull everyone else back so that the enemy kills him. So that he'll be left with no reinforcements, surrounded by enemy soldiers. And so Joab does this. But I want you to consider something. David writes this letter, this death warrant for Uriah. 
He rolls the parchment up and seals it. And he puts it in Uriah's hand. And Uriah is the courier who delivers to the commander of the army his own death notice. Because Uriah is an honorable man. He does what his king asks him. And when it's delivered, Joab does something. He, he says, okay, I'm going to place Uriah where I know the fiercest fighting will be, where the enemy's best soldiers will be stationed, and then we'll, we'll step aside and they will strike him down. And they did. And so I want you to think through David's sin and the progression that we've just witnessed. David begins by something simple of not going out to fulfill his responsibilities of leading the battle. Then he sees a woman bathing. Now, seeing her wasn't the problem. It was the looking that was the problem. Upon seeing her, he looks and his eyes stay there and he notices that she's beautiful and he desires her. So he inquires about her and he sends a servant to go and get her and he lies with her and then he sends her home. A one night stand. All of these steps along the way with opportunities for David to turn and correct course and he doesn't. And when the... Everything comes to a head and he discovers that she's going to have a child. He knows he's got to do something, so he covers it up. And he attempts to to manipulate and deceive Uriah, throwing his child to be raised by another man. And then, when he won't be dishonorable to his other men who can't be at home, he has Uriah put to death. So we add murder to the list. Now, I don't think things are easy for David after this happens. If you know a little bit about David from what you read in the Psalms and his story, I don't think David slept well. I don't think he felt comfortable with where he was and what he had done. And God, in his grace to him, had given David a friend, a friend named Nathan. And Nathan was a prophet, and he spoke for God. And God called Nathan to go and confront the king. He does it in an interesting way, and it's similar to what my dad used to do. When we had done something really bad and as a teen, and you just knew that the hammer was coming down, my dad would have this, this talk with you, and it happened in one of two places, either out on the back porch where my parents had this chimney, this outdoor fireplace where you might have an evening talk because men do better talking when we can't see each other face to face, or we would go out to the front in the house. There was this uh, white uh, wooden fence and that we have cows in that pasture. And you would come and kind of prop up on the fence, both looking out at the fence, not looking at each other. You don't want to do that. You look out at the fence. And if you had done something really bad, dad would begin the conversation like this. Son, I want to tell you a story. And when that happened, you knew, one, you were about to learn something important. And two, it was going to be really bad when the story was over. So Nathan comes to David, and he kind of begins it that way. I want to tell you a story. In chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guests who had come to him. 
So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David is angry when he hears this story. And Nathan has David just where he wants him. What Nathan says next has to be the most courageous words he's ever spoken in his life. Because Nathan is standing in front of the king. And he's about to confront him on the darkest sin the king has ever committed. Now I want you to think about being Nathan at this moment. You were at home completely unaware of what had happened. And God came to you and revealed to you the king's sin. That he had taken Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, and that he had put her husband to death. Now, if you love the king and you're a man of God, you're grieving for your king. You're sad and disappointed. You're probably concerned about what this means for the kingdom as the king walks away from God. And then God says, I want you to go to David and I want you to confront him and rebuke him. To which Nathan might say, come again. Okay, you you want me, God, to go to the palace and to walk into the throne room of the king. And you want me to rebuke him. God, do I need to remind you that he has an army? And and, and that if you get on the king's bad side, that never goes well for you. But he goes anyway. And he's boldly speaking before the king. And when David is angry about what this man in the story has done, Nathan goes for it. And I want you to hear what he says in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the short sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. When you see this, Nathan confronts the issue directly, calls out David's sin, communicates the significance of it, and that God is not pleased, and the consequences of the sin. 
He also communicates God's grace in the midst of that, that God had put away his sin. And I want you to notice that the consequences are not irrelevant just because the sin was forgiven. Sometimes we get confused and we think that forgiveness means there are no consequences. and That's not what it means. I can forgive someone, I can love them, and and we can move on, but that doesn't mean there are no consequences. And when God forgives us from an eternal perspective, doesn't mean we're immune to the order of things and the wreckage that our sin creates. Sin always has collateral damage, and grace does not make that disappear. There will be consequences. And so the king responds. When the king is confronted, rather than responding in anger and telling Nathan, how dare you speak to me that way? He says, I've sinned against God. David repents. And in response to his repentance, God is gracious to him. And Nathan goes home as quick as he can. When you think about this story... I want you to compare this to something. And the scriptures even mention that before David was the king Saul and God took the kingdom from him. And here's David sinning arguably in a greater way than Saul did. But there's a couple times when just as Nathan came and confronted Saul because of his sin, the prophet Samuel, or Nathan came and confronted David, the prophet Samuel would go and confront Saul. There's two instances of note. One, Saul has, has done something that he shouldn't have done. They're about to go into battle, and they're waiting for Samuel to come and offer sacrifices to God, and Samuel is delayed. And so Saul takes upon the role of a priest, which God has not given him, he offers sacrifices. And when he's confronted, he makes excuses. He says why it's okay to do what he did. He does everything except repent. Later on, God's going to send them into battle and he's going to say, don't save any of the livestock of the enemy. Wipe them out. And when Samuel goes to see him, Saul says, I've done everything the Lord says. And Samuel says, why do I hear sheep? Well, you know, we we, we took the good ones and we were going to sacrifice them to God. That was the plan. You see, it's a blame shift, an excuse, a defense, but no repentance. David has sinned horrifically, but when confronted, openly repents. And I've got to believe that David, when confronted by Nathan, and this is out in the open, and at least he can talk to someone about it, has a load lifted off his shoulders. Because he's been carrying this. And he confesses his sin before God and before Nathan. And in the midst of this story, it's incredibly important, the lessons that we learn about sin and grace. And if there's anything we really need to understand, it's those two things. Because you and I are are wrecked by sin, and so we need to understand how it works and, and how we can learn to walk in victory. And we also know that we fall, so we need to learn what grace does and how it works. And I want you to see a few things about sin and grace. And the first is this, is that sins of omission inevitably lead to sins of commission. Sins of omission inevitably lead to sins of commission. What do we mean by that? When we stop doing the things we ought to do, it is not long before we start doing the things we ought not do. 
This is an important thing to understand. And this is deeper than the old adage, idle hands are the devil's playpen. It goes beyond that. Because here's what happens. When we begin to step away from what God has called us to do, we begin to shift our gaze from that to other things. We begin to look to those things to satisfy us. And we begin to be discontented with what God has given us. See, there are things in our hearts that we don't know we want until we start looking at them. And sin awakens in us and discontentment happens. For years, every one of us had cars with vinyl seats. Which was okay for the four days a year in Texas. It's not 100 degrees. But for 361 days of year, a year... You get burned when you sit down. And so we bought seat covers or beach towels and we put them on. And it stuck to you. And then they did something. Nice cloth seats. Not that rough tweed stuff. Nice ones. And then they upped it with quality leather. And when they did that, none of us wanted vinyl seats. And then they upped it. As if leather wasn't enough, they put heaters in the seat. I'm waiting for them to put air conditioning in the seat. They do. Now, see, now that what just happened. I just got told that they have coolant in the seat, and now I want that. This is how life works. When we start looking at all the things we don't have, we start wanting all the things we don't have. We become discontent with what we have been given. That's what happens with David. God's given him a directive as the king. You're to rule over the people. You're to lead the army. That's the king's job, and he fails to do that. And so he finds himself at home with nothing to do, with his eyes wandering around the kingdom for what else he can acquire. The second thing I would tell you is that David is deceived by his own sense of power and authority. He believes that he's not accountable to anyone, and he believes that he can have whatever his eyes see. He believes that no one will know what he does, and there'll be no consequences. And that's a lie. And when we believe that no one will hold us accountable and no one will ever know, we will find ourselves believing that lie and drifting into all sorts of ridiculous activity. Because we convince ourselves that that this sin won't matter because it'll never be brought to light. And the reality is, sin always finds its way into the light. One of my favorite shows back uh, on the VH1 days when we had cable was a show, uh, Hollywood's Best Kept Secrets. And I found it entertaining because they told us what they were. Which means they weren't secrets. It was on a TV show. Things make their way into the light. And and we have this easy way of deceiving ourselves into believing that no one will ever know. You see this in American political theater so often, right? We have someone running for president only to find out they've got shady business deals and a couple of affairs. And you would think that a guy who knows he's going into that level of scrutiny would realize this is going to come out. And so I just give you some free advice. If you're ever thinking of running for Congress, let me give you two things for free. One, your first press conference where you announce your candidacy, confess everything you've ever done. 
Just put it out there. That way it doesn't roll out in October just before the election. So, so you come out of gates and you just go, all right, get, get hypnotized if you have to to remember it all. And just ask, okay, um, when I was 19, I did this, 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 this. Just lay it all out there and tell everybody. The other thing is if you've done any of those things, a shady business deal or been unfaithful to your spouse, don't run. Just don't. Because we're all going to know. Things find their way out. And when you believe the lie, no one will ever know. You give yourself permission to do things that you wouldn't do if the sin were pulled out into the light and seen as ugly for what it is. The third practical consideration I would tell you is that you need a friend like Nathan. You need a friend who loves you and loves God and will speak boldly to you when you need it. And that's one of the hard parts is we try to avoid those kinds of friendships. And I would just encourage you, if you don't have that, there's a couple things practically you can do to pursue that. I would tell you to get into a life group. We have small groups that meet year-round. We also have in the fall starting off some women's and men's studies where you can plug in. If you're a student, get connected in the student ministry and begin to develop relationships with people who love you, who love God, and will boldly speak difficult truth to you. But in the midst of this downward spiral for sin, we learn something incredible about God's grace. We learn that God is gracious to those who repent. That to those who will turn from their sin and seek Him, God is gracious. And in David's response, we see the blueprint for responding to our own sin, which, by the way, we all have plenty of. How do you bounce back? How do you seek restoration with God? I want to encourage you to look at Psalm 51 with me. Psalm 51 is powerful because this is David's prayer after Nathan confronts him. Nathan comes to him, addresses the issue, and David begins to pray and he writes it down. And I want you to just listen to David's approach to God in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I want you to see two things that David does. 
One is David simply pleads for mercy. He says, God, I know that you're unfailing in your love. And so I'm asking you to forgive me. You see, in the Old Testament system, uh, th- there were sins and then there were, there, there were sacrifices that correlated. And if you had done something, you could go make a sin offering. But the sins of adultery and murder that David's committed, there's no prescribed offering. There's nothing he can do. He doesn't have anything to go to. So he says, God, I'd give you a sacrifice, but there's nothing. And so all I have here is just to lay myself before you as my God and King and say, God, would you be merciful to me? Because I can't pay restitution for this. I can't fix this. So God, I'm asking that you'd give me grace according to your unfailing love. The second thing David does that is amazing to me is he asks God to change him. David pleads for God's mercy and he says, God, I want you to cleanse me because if you don't cleanse me, I won't be clean. God, I need you to give me a new heart because this heart I carry around, it's messed up. I can't fix it. So God, I need you to, to forgive me and have mercy upon me and I need you to change me because my only hope of walking faithfully with you is if you give me the desire to do it and I don't have it, so God, change me. And so I want you to hear the prayer of David's heart. That that honestly, this is a prayer that I pray daily. God, would you give me a new heart? Because ultimately, the behavior patterns that are so destructive, they don't begin with behavior. They begin with the desire to seek something other than God. And so David just goes straight to the heart of the matter. He says, God, down deep in my core, I'm wretched and sinful. And the only way I'm going to be faithful to you is if you change that. You see, David had believed that by shedding Uriah's blood, he would cover over his sin. And that he wouldn't be found out. The reality is Uriah's blood could do nothing to cover over his sin before God. And while David couldn't offer any sacrifice that would make any change in his standing, God would. And while Uriah's blood could do nothing, God would send his only son, Jesus, who would die for us in David's place, in my place, in your place, paying for our sin, his life for our sin. He paid that penalty for us. He was the sacrifice. See, David couldn't offer a sacrifice, but God did. And Jesus paid for every sin that you and I would commit. In full. And what God demands of us in response is what he asked of David in response to turn to him, to trust him, to throw ourselves before our king and say, God, I am in your hands and I am in need of your mercy and I'm in need of your spirit to change me. And God to David answers that prayer and God to us, if we will seek him, will do the same. God is gracious to sinners who repent and turn to him. One of the things that amazes me about David is the world doesn't know what to do with a God who forgives like this. What I've noticed in our world is that is that we have two tendencies. One is to say uh, we're frustrated and, and really put off that God would judge anyone and at the same time angry that God would forgive horrific sinners. And God doesn't seem to care about popular opinion. 
God seems to care about loving sinful men and women who will return to him and receive grace. And if you're here today and you've never done that, I want to tell you that God is ready to forgive, that no sin you've ever committed is so grievous that God doesn't have the ability through the blood of Jesus or the willingness because of his loving disposition to cleanse you. He will if you'll go before him. And if you're here and you've been seeking the Lord and then things went astray and you got wavered and you want to come back, you know, the blueprint is the same. It's turned to him. He'll be merciful. According to his unfailing kindness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of infinite grace and mercy to us, that you look upon sinners like us and like David, and we have nothing to lay before you. But when we call out for mercy because of the blood of your son Jesus, who died for us and rose again, you answer. And you give us grace and you send your spirit to empower us and to give us a new heart. Father, I pray that you would teach us to walk with you this week. That we might honor you and experience the joy of your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.